Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, here we go. Yet another episode of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is episode 263. I have a very fun guest this week. Actually, this week and next. Lisa Edelstein is with me. Very fine actress. You are probably familiar with her if you ever watched House. She played Dr. Cuddy. She was also in The Comiskey Method, where she played uh, Alan Arkin's crazy daughter. She was in The West Wing, and I first got a chance to work with her way back in the 90s when she was a semi-regular on Almost Perfect, uh, the show that David Isaacs and Robin Schiff and I did that starred Nancy Travis. Now, Lisa Edelstein has led... A a fascinating life. In addition to being a terrific actress, well, she's also been a playwright, an MTV host. She's been a voice on a number of animated shows. And in the 80s, she was very prominent in the New York club scene, hanging out with Andy Warhol, people like that. There were big articles about her. She was really renowned as Lisa E. So we'll talk about all of that and this week some horrendous audition stories, including one involving Oliver Stone. Now, you have no idea what a sleazeball this guy is. Wait till you hear that story. So, part one coming up right now Lisa Edelstein, right here on Hollywood and Levine. So the first time that I met you, this was way back in 1993, and it's actually a lesson for all actors. Uh, You came in and read for the iconic series Big Wave Daves, (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and you were too young for the part, but my partner and I both noted that, God, she's really funny, and as often happens, we'll make note of that. You know, you just walk out of the audition and went, okay, they hated me. I didn't get the part, you know. But then two years later when we were doing Almost Perfect and we had a part and we thought, oh, that that girl from Big Wave Daves, she would be great. We didn't even cast anybody. We just got you. 
and then you only had like a few lines in that first episode, and like in two episodes, you were a semi regular. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so funny. Well, I will say that I always viewed auditioning as uh, a performance, and so I always felt like sometimes you get the job, and sometimes you get a new fan or a new relationship. Like if you right. approach it as like a means to an end, the audition itself. The, for those young actors out there, right, uh, it, it helps enormously because because there are a lot of reasons why somebody doesn't get a job, and and most of them have nothing to do with their performance. Um, so if you can go in and do your best version of you, then you've done the casting director a favor, the producers a favor, like you've done you've done your job. So I love that. That makes me feel really good. No, it's true. And some actors yeah. will come in and they'll just go like, oh, God, it was hard to find the parking structure. Uh, <laughs> I was in a series four years ago and now I'm doing this. I'm reading for you idiots. And yeah. you, can, you can just tell. But, yeah, you do kind of make your own momentum. You are funny. There's just something innately funny is that something that you always had, that, that comic timing? Uh, you, you can just tell. <laughs> I don't know. I guess so. Yeah, my grandma was really funny, and I, I always admired her for that. She didn't even know she was being funny half the time. You know, for a long time, she knew I wanted to be an actress, and she was trying to convince me to go on the Wheel of Fortune. So, like, the, this whole run of... How you go on Wheel of Fortune, producer sees you on TV, you make $10,000, you're an actress, you're on TV, Wheel of Fortune. And it's like <laughs> her whole way of being was just so magnificent to me because she was so expressive. Who are some of the people growing up that you admired? Were people like Carol Burnett or were there? I mean, guys? I was obsessed with Carol Burnett. I loved the Carol Burnett show so much. I loved Lucy, but I got a lot of anxiety watching her show because she always messed it up. Um, and that, even though that was the whole point of the show, I, it would upset me because I also wanted to be on stage. Like all the things Lucy wanted, I wanted. And she just kept right. ruining <laughs> it all. Um, I loved, I loved Jeannie. <laughs> okay. Barbara Eden. Sure. Yes. Um, I, you know, I was really typical. The, the, um, the Charlie's Angels. I'm trying to think of the women that I was really into. I was really into uh, my favorite movie was Cabaret. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because it's like hookers and Nazis. <laughs> like, what more could you ask for? Like, awesome, raunchy dancing. <laughs> and good songs. And great songs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Also, my other favorite movie was Logan's Run, just like cool outfits in the future and all beautiful people having weird orgies. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, dying. Well, you are also a very good sport. Uh, I remember one episode of Almost Perfect where we had a pie fight. We had a, a giant pie fight. <laughs> and I was directing it, and I didn't want it to be just a free-for-all. So I went back and I studied Laurel and Hardy and The Great Race and all of these classic pie fights to find just specific gags. And one I saw was where somebody seemingly escapes being hit and then gets like 50 pies all at once. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and I remember thinking, oh, Lisa'd be great for that. <laughs> you remember that episode? It's probably it's, yeah. you still have custard in your hair, I imagine. <laughs> we had a lot of fun on that show. I don't know if you remember this, but my first official episode was actually not the episode that ended up being first because the audition episode was the Thanksgiving episode when she shows up at the door crying. Mm-hmm. But I had just had spine surgery and I was broke because I couldn't work for, I hadn't been able to work for like six months. And I asked you guys, I mean, I can't even imagine doing this, but I was just like, I knew, I felt the love in the room. And I said, would you mind writing me into another episode before this episode so I can pay my rent this month? And that was why I was in the scene with Chip at the table when he introduces his wife. That wasn't that you added that. Yeah. Well, we love and you. It was amazing. What, and what it was can like, I say? You did. So you did a really good turn for me. You 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 saved me in that month. Well, happy to do it. <laughs> so <laughs> ha- yeah, happy anyway. to do it. I will always thank you for that. So let's go back through your career. You start out in New York and you're studying theater. And here's the part that I'm sure a lot of people don't know about you was your club days mm-hmm. back in the 80s when you were Lisa E and known as the queen of the night. <laughs> what was that all about? <laughs> um, when I was a teenager, I started going to nightclubs. Like back then, they it was all very pervy. And, you know, if you could sneak in, nobody would, nobody would look twice. Um, so I started going to nightclubs when I was about 14. Uh, and by the time I was 18, I met my best friend, this guy, James St. James, originally James Clark. And he had been obsessed with this sort of underground club scene of downtown New York. And back then this is pre-computer, obviously pre-internet. So, there were real true microcosms in different cities. And that particular microcosm was incredibly influential. It was, you know, Keith Haring and Basquiat and Andy Warhol and um, uh, Kenny Scharf and uh, amazing, amazing performance artists, some of whom you'll never hear of because they all died of AIDS not shortly thereafter. Um, it was just a really interesting, creative environment. And when I, when James introduced me to that world because he was obsessed with it, I was obsessed with it because I felt like I had finally landed in a world where there were people I wanted to learn from or I wanted to reflect myself off of, people who were just made of creativity um, and weirdness. And it was exciting. Uh, and I think I was probably the most... Uh, publicly palatable type of person to be at that club, like someone who's going to write about somebody in that club, the rest of the world would most understand my presence there. But I really was the least interesting person in the room. But it turned out that as time went by and James and I were going out, we became a part of this world. We became sort of like the short list of people you would mention were at the party. Um, and then the Maureen Dowd wrote this big piece called uh, Lisa in Wonderland, where she followed me. She called Details Magazine, like, who should I follow? Who's who's the it girl? And so it was me. And so they did this big article in the New York Times Magazine that um, when it came out, my my phone number and my home address were listed in the phone book. Uh-oh. So, <laughs> so I got a really good taste of what celebrity is. 
really early. Um, and I was a college student. I was studying theater at NYU. But then all of a sudden I had all these stalkers and, and it was really crazy and dangerous. And I didn't talk about it because I didn't know who to talk about it with. And the people that I knew from the club scene were sort of resentful that I was getting all this attention for no reason when there were actual people doing actual things that would have done well with that attention. Um, so it was a really, it was a very uh, difficult time for me. And what should have been a celebration actually was really hard. Um, and the best thing that could have happened to me at the time, because what it did was it, it made me realize that I needed to make sure that wanting to be an actress was not wanting to be a celebrity because that was not um, worth it. You have to be in this business because you love what you're actually doing. And, um, and I decided, yes, in fact, this is what I'd love to do. So I kind of disappeared for a little bit. And then I ended up writing a musical uh, about the AIDS crisis. And because I'd had all this attention in the press, I could get my musical produced at this really amazing theater for a workshop production because they were willing to give me a chance because they knew I would at least fill the seats for a weekend. And mm -hmm. then after I filled the seats for a weekend, they gave me a full production and a beautiful rehearsal space. And I like literally sang and danced in people's living rooms to raise money to pay all my actors. Um, so I produced it and starred in it and wrote it and composed it. And it was incredible. And that Whatever was happened I to it? My life started. I had beyond I that production. I didn't have enough money to publish it because it cost thousands of dollars, and I was completely bankrupt by the end of that. <laughs> I hate it. Everybody. Seems to be a recurring theme. Yeah. <laughs> well, I paid. I paid everybody. I wanted to make sure people had wages that they could live on. It's just that I didn't do the math right, and I ended up with nothing left for myself. Um, when I think back to those clubs, I mean, you know, you hear about the Plato's Retreat and all the clubs, but those were the 70s. So what exactly went on in these clubs? In the 80s. So this was early 80s. Um, I mean, places like Plato's Retreat, they, they, those were more sex clubs and S&M clubs, and um, they were still there. I, I mean, I remember I threw a fake birthday party. James threw a fake birthday party for me. Um and we did it in an abandoned warehouse in Soho. Can you imagine a huge abandoned, like you couldn't get a taxi down in Soho in the early eighties. Right. Um, and 3000 people came <laughs> saying happy birthday. Nobody knew who I was. Didn't matter. It was hilarious. Um, they were, it was just a really uh, unique time because it was just as the AIDS, the AIDS pandemic was hitting very hard. Um, so we're, we're teetering on the edge of a remarkably creative time that was then leading into a time period where people, it was life and death that was happening. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of, that kind of energy is very intense. Um, uh, so people get, people were probably at their most interesting because nobody knew who was going to live or die in that moment. There was just, an, an energy around that world that was remarkably creative and strange and exciting. Boys um, live for today. <laughs> it, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we were going to three, four funerals a week. I mean, it was really no joke. And my, the people that I grew up with, they thought it was government hype. They thought it was made up. Um, Reagan never said the word AIDS. Um, there was no treatment. 
people were, when they got sick, they, it was a death sentence. I had a number of friends commit suicide. Um, it was a really, it was very life or death in that, in that moment. And I was a young, like I had just come into my own sexually and like, you know, you want to get out there in the world and all of a sudden there's this crazy disease killing everybody. I mean, when we were kids, it was like everyone was afraid of herpes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Something, something that, like, no, you're actually going to be dead if you get it. Yeah. Yeah. The good old days. Yeah. You know, my generation was, you know, the sexual revolution. But no, that, right. that is gone. So you, you hung out with Andy Warhol. Or what was he like? Fun guy? He was the conversations I had with Andy that I remember, because there's a lot I don't remember, but. Um, they were just pretty banal. I mean, he, I remember going for a walk with him and he, he was talking about how much he loved the movie kindergarten cop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was just a really interesting, odd, quiet guy. Um, but I wasn't really what he was interested in being around. I was a young girl. Like that was not the most right. exciting. So, so I, I can't really speak for what he was like with other people. Who are some of the most interesting people that you encountered there? I would say that they're people you'd never heard of. Okay. Um, because, because um, you know, it was a time like I remember one day James and I went out to a club and he wore, he decided to wear a hula skirt. And like a week later in the windows of Barney's were hula skirts. You know, it was like people were coming to this this little microcosm to feed off of it because there was just, everybody was weird and sort of had permission to be weird and creative. And there was amazing performance artists. And, um, and it was funny because I was at NYU at the time. And at that point I was studying experimental theater, but I was living experimental theater. So the whole thing just felt like, why, why am I in this room when I'm, when I'm also out in this really interesting world so I ended up leaving school to do my play. And it's something that I didn't know about you, that you hosted Awake on the Wild Side on MTV in 1990. What was that? So um, MTV was pretty young in 1990 because it really started like mid-80s. Um, and I was trying to figure out like what I could do, what would be a cool job. So I had sent in an audition tape to MTV, but I never heard back. And then... Apparently, somebody from MTV knew about me as Lisa E. They were having a meeting where they were throwing out ideas around for like who to. So somebody had seen my audition tape. Somebody had heard of Lisa E. Um, and was wondering if that would be a good idea to have me come in. And somebody else had seen my play and was trying to figure out who that girl was. So three different people were pitching me as an idea and they didn't know they were pitching the same person. <laughs> it's um, kind of like today being a YouTube star. And yeah. Yeah. And so I, I um, was broke after my play and then I got this of job. Course. Yeah. I got this <laughs> job and I was being paid like $500 a show. So I was getting like 15, like however much that was, I think it was 300 or $500 a show. I did five shows a week. Um, and uh, it was wildly stupid, um, really like unwatchable. <laughs> <laughs> and I was working with this stand-up comedian who was perfectly nice, but we had zero chemistry. Um, and I finally realized that I learned a lot. I learned how to, you know, 
read off the teleprompter and I learned um, I learned that if somebody says something to you that they think is funny um, and you don't think it's funny but pretend it's funny, then it's not funny. But if you don't think it's funny and then you ignore them, then it's funny. So then by the time it, by the time it was over, it just became this sort of like deadpan relationship <laughs> that was somebody told me this woman, I went and had a meeting with her. She was running the head of Disney casting or something at the time. And she's like, wow, I love that show. I was like, why do you love that terrible show? And she said, because I've just never seen two people hate each other more on television. <laughs> Like, I really hate him. <laughs> Lisa was broke, and yeah. we're doing this on Zoom, so you can't see, but <laughs> Lisa is standing on a street corner with a tin cup right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not broke anymore. I'm good. Uh, I'm fine. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, what made you come out to L.A.? Um, after, after the show on MTV, uh, I decided to just check out pilot season. Um, to see what it was like out here. Because in New York back then, you would audition for something and they would put it on a, a, a video cassette tape, mail that tape to Los Angeles. Then they would watch in Los Angeles, be like, almost, then give you a direction, like one direction about the scene, mail, send that back to the casting director, call you in a week later for another meeting. Like it was so cumbersome. It was so hard to kind of crack the code of how to actually get them to want you to um, test. So I decided to come out here. And then when I got here, here I realized there was just so much more work out here that I decided right. to stay. Right. Well, you've done a lot of work. You were in the doors. That was my, that's how I got my SAG card. Okay. Um, what did you play in the doors? I don't I, remember you. You shouldn't. In that I movie. One line. I have the line that got me my SAG card. I was <laughs> supposed to be in another scene. My parts just kept getting written out. But I had yelled at Oliver Stone at my audition because it was so offensive what they were doing. Um, so he, he loved <laughs> what were they me. doing? <laughs> they were having girls audition doing sex scenes. Seriously? I'm serious. Wow. wow. They were recording it and they were sharing those tapes. Oh, man. Was, Why am I not surprised with Oliver Stone? I'm not a huge fan, so it's, uh, it's beyond. It, that's that's like the surface of what what it was. I mean, the the content of the scenes was really grotesque and not actually in the movie. Um, it was so. I just I, luckily when I got there, the first scene I was supposed to do for this one character, I didn't know what I was going to do because it was so uh, obscene. Um, that I was like, well, I'm just going to go in and wing it and see see what happens. Um, and then I walked in and he said, actually, I, you should audition for this other part. So I think I'm off the hook, but I don't have to do this one really obscene scene. And then he gives me four other sex scenes where the lines are like, fuck me, you rock God, fuck me. Like, like there's no dialogue beyond right. what's happening. And he gives me a reader to work with and this kid was so sweet. He was a young gay guy. And we're, we go off to another room to rehearse. I was like, what do I do with this material? And he said, you know what? Let's just pretend you already have the job and we're rehearsing. And I just thought that is fantastic advice. That is fantastic advice. Yeah. Um, so that's what we did. We rolled around the floor. <laughs> I'm losing my page. Like Jim Morrison <laughs> reaches inside her, pulls out her diaphragm and says, you won't be needing this. Like, that's what we're talking about. 
um, I'm losing my page. Oh, right. Fuck me. Rock on. Fuck me. And then finally I end up like under the desk that Oliver's at and he's like looking over and he says, okay, that's great. Thank you so much. And I was like, that's it. You don't want to see the other scenes. He said, no. I was like, so you only need to see me fuck on the floor. <laughs> you don't need to see me fuck on the couch or fuck against the wall. <laughs> was this your very first audition in LA? No, that was New York. He came. To oh, that York. was in New York. Yes. Oh, okay. My first audition. I don't remember my first one in LA. I, my first year in LA was like, it was always between me and somebody else on a pilot. Like I tested five or six times and didn't get it. It was really frustrating. Um, and then I got a series, but in the middle of, and that, this is how green I was. I, I, I was, it was a show called Circus made by the people who made Married with Children. And it was about a really rundown, sleazy traveling circus with like a pedophile clown. And uh, I mean, just like, it, it was very dark and funny. And I played a fortune teller with my mother, who's only a few years older than me. Um, <laughs> and um, when I auditioned for it, I wore a gypsy fortune teller outfit. <laughs> because I didn't know. And then the casting director was like, I'm, we're going to call you back to come, you know, come back, but you don't need to wear a costume. <laughs> I'm like, all right. <laughs> I'm like, I just, I had literally no idea. Um, that would usually scare us as producers on the other side of the table I'm when sure somebody came in. Pre-read. I'm sure it was a pre-read because I just gotten here. Nobody knew me. Uh-huh. So yes, I'm sure she prepped me for you because she didn't know who I was and taught me to not wear costumes. Yeah, yes. I know. It'd be terrifying. And um, just for the record, when we read Lisa for Big Wave Daves, there were no sex scenes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you came yeah. in, you read, <laughs> there was a casting director. Uh, yeah, very it was, professional. Yeah, yeah. Above you didn't board. ask me to take my shirt off. Nothing, nothing. nothing at all weird happened. Nothing, nothing. We just... Uh, but imagine what you could have gotten away with. I, I, I'm looking back like we were idiots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And, and again, young actors, if anyone wants you to do any of that kind of stuff, say no. Yeah. Don't I don't had an do audition it. where I actually had to report. I had to report them. It was for a, a show. I can't remember what it was called. But... Um, but there was a possible nude scene was how it was presented. And then, and then here's your audition scene. So I went in, I did my audition and I, I did really well, felt good. And then the casting director, who is a woman, she's looking at me oddly and she goes, okay, so I was like, so, so what? So we just need to, I'm sorry, what do you need? They wanted me to like, <laughs> take my shirt off at this audition. But there's an actual law uh, where it says, like, if you have nudity and you need to make sure there's no scars or deformities or whatever, you need to say that before somebody comes into a room because or else you're going to get people who are not prepared to do something like that. Like, it's a, they're, you're taking advantage of somebody. So I actually had to report them. Right. We've come a long way. Really have. <laughs> Considering that that now there are monitors on the set and yeah. things like that, we we have come a long, long way. Oliver Stone, what a dick. Are you surprised? 
Actually, I'm not. Anyway, that is part one of my two-part series with Lisa Edelstein. Next week, we are going to talk about uh, being in the West Wing, and we'll spend a lot of time talking about House and uh, other aspects of her very, very interesting career. She's a fun guest, isn't she? Anyway, our thanks as always to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to Jason and Bruce Miller, also to John Wolford. If you want to get in touch with me, Levine at Outlook.com. That is my email address, Levine at Outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine. I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Thank you for all of the nice comments uh, regarding my cartoons. Again, uh, I have been posting some of my cartoons uh, up there on my Instagram page, so uh, please follow me and check those out. And uh, let's see, what else? Subscribe? No, okay, all that crap. Anyway, part two coming up next week with Lisa Edelstein right here on Hollywood and the Fine. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.